All right, I'll just uh, open us up in prayer. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for this day that uh, we can remember um, why we believe in you and um, why we can have hope for more than what is in this world. And I just pray that we can set aside all the worldly things that may be keeping us from enjoying that celebration and, and rejoicing in that moment. And um, so, yeah, I just pray that through these things we can do here on Sunday and um, fellowship together, we can be reminded of this celebration and um, be encouraged to share that with other people and um, just reflect what you've done for us and the world. So just praise things in your name. Amen. Uh, Turn with me to Acts chapter 3 and verse um, 11. Or actually, Acts 3 verse 1, I should say. Okay, why don't you uh, stand with me at Acts chapter 3 verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze at him and said, Look at us. He began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus of the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright, and he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people who saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we were witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it's the name of this Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he is fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And that likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days. 
It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Please be seated. A few weeks ago, I was preparing for our men's Bible study in the book of Acts, and a particular verse jumped out at me and basically hit me right between the eyes. It was 4 verse 2. The temple guards and the, and the Sadducees came being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. What jailed the preacher? What jailed the preacher? The proclamation that Jesus Christ raised from the dead. So it began to make me think, what is it about the resurrection that is so offensive? (laughs) What is it about the resurrection and teaching that Jesus raises the dead that's so offensive to people? It's an important question because we celebrate Easter today, on Easter Sunday, believing that today, the first day of the week, for us in the Christian faith, is the resurrection. So what is it about the resurrection that jailed the preacher and becomes so offensive? Well, let me give you the context before we uh, dive in a bit more. This was the second public sermon uh, Peter had ever preached in the history of the early church. But unlike his first sermon, which was occasioned by the coming of the Holy Spirit, this one was prompted by the result of an incredible miracle that had taken place at the hands of the apostles. He had healed a man who had been lame for over 40 years from birth. And he was a well-known figure to those accustomed to coming to the temple. I mean, if you, had, you know, three times a year, there was a great feast, but on a weekly basis, you'd come to the temple as a Jew. And no doubt you saw this fellow um, many times as you had come to bring your sacrifices and to worship God. He was obviously part of the establishment, if you will, in terms of familiarity. And those of you who know the story well don't need much more explanation, but some of you, this might be sort of new to you. So let me give you a quick summary. Two of the disciples come to the temple, uh, Peter and John, and they arrive to pray at about three in the afternoon. And upon arrival, they encountered this fellow at the entrance of the temple, and his situation is utterly hopeless. He's lame from birth. Uh, He's been lame for over 40 years. So basically the same age as me. And he, carried, he was carried daily, carried daily by his family or friends to be laid at the temple gate, to beg for money, to make a living, to feed himself. So Peter and John, when they encounter him, uh, they engage him, but not to give him a financial boost, not to help him alleviate, be alleviated in that way. They command by the name of Jesus that he be healed and instantaneously He is fully recovered. And so this fellow jumps around praising God and yelling in the temple courts about how God has been gracious to him. 
And it leaves people in awe and wonder. The people who knew him and witnessed that they were left in awe and wonder. We pick this up in verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him. And it says that they were filled with wonder and amazement. In verse 11, when they came to the portico of Solomon, like the outer courts of the temple, it says they were full of amazement at what happened to this fellow. And so Peter piggybacks on this event, and he uses this as a springboard to give a major sermon, a sermon that was going to add 2,000 people to the church in one day. The church is going to go from 3,000 people to 5,000 because of one sermon. So Peter breaks his sermon into three parts. First part, an explanation and an accusation, verse 12 through 16. Second part of a sermon, an explanation and a plea or a command. And the third part of the, of the sermon, an explanation and a warning. So let's dive in. In 12 through 16, this is what he explains. He says, because the question is, what in the world went on? Who healed this fellow? So the explanation for Peter is this. It was by the power of the resurrected Jesus, the author of life, that brought about this miraculous healing. The accusation, you murdered the author of life. So the explanation, it was the author of life, Jesus, by his power and resurrection that brought healing. You murdered that man. You see, in verse 11, when all the people who had witnessed the miracle gathered around the outer court of the temple to see and learn what had happened, Peter made one thing clear. He and John were not the source of the healing. It was Jesus. Look at verse 12. He says, when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you so amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if it's by our own power that we made him walk? He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our father, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Look at verse 15, or actually verse 16, I should say. He says, and on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So Peter left no ambiguity as to the source of this man's healing. It wasn't them. It was by the power of the risen Lord. And it was Jesus' resurrection power that had been unleashed in this man, bringing full restoration. All they did was pray in the power and the authority of his name. Now, it was a miracle of astronomical proportions because it was an instantaneous recovery. There was no physiotherapy required. Nobody went to Stuart for MAT. You know, he didn't have to go there and get a few sessions. Verse 8 records, with a leap, he stood upright. With a leap. Now, you think about that. That's complete physical restoration to muscles that were, have never been used since the day he was born. So if you've never used a muscle from the day you're born, they're, you have, they're, they're there attachments, but they're completely atrophied. I mean, I guess in looking at his legs, it would have just been a shin bone and a thigh bone with nothing surrounding it. <laughs> in the prayer of Christ's name, muscles fully restored and fully functional that he could start leaping in the temple praising God. But not just muscles and, and ligaments and tendons that now work, it's neurological connections. I mean, again, uh, 
he doesn't even know, his brain doesn't even know how to send, send commands to his muscles to work because there's no connection. The connection is dead. And through the miracle, he neurologically restores his brain to send uh, firing patterns to his, his muscles to make them work for the first time in their lives. So this is an, an, un, a miracle undeniable to the masses. Undeniable. Even those vehemently opposed to, to Jesus and the disciples could not deny that it happened. In chapter 4, verse 16, he says this. It says this when the temple, uh, uh, the Sadducees and so on come after Peter and the boys. They say, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So the people who put Jesus on the cross cannot deny he's healed. But what they can deny and what they do deny is the source of the healing. Healing, obvious. The source, not so much. And so Peter says it was Jesus. Now, to deny the source is a pretty, pretty incredible indictment considering who Jesus is called and what his titles, or the titles he'd been given by Peter. Look in verse 13. He says, he calls Jesus uh, um, God's glorified servant. He calls him the holy and righteous one. But to me, the most important title there is that he's the prince of life, or in some of your translations, the author of life. He's the author of life. Now, in Jewish context, there's no ambiguity as to what Peter's claiming. To be the author of life was a title reserved for God. Psalm 36.9, God is described in this way. You are the fountain of life. In other words, life originates with God. And here he says, Jesus is the author of life. Life originates with him. So this is, this is a something phenomenal in terms of the indictment against these guys because they have, uh, they have denied the source of life and death. But here's the key with this miracle. The miracle itself was not a means to an end. Jesus didn't heal this man just simply to show off and to do like a sort of, lack of a better word, like a magic show and like a circus to impress everyone. The miracle was pointing to greater spiritual realities. That the same Jesus who had the power and authority to restore a man to perfect health, who had, be, who had congenital sickness for over 40 years, was the same Jesus who will one day have the power and authority to raise the dead and resurrect people at the end of the age. Again, he wasn't putting on a show. The miracle had a, a, a point. By restoring this man, he was pointing to a greater truth that he had the, the power and authority to also restore life at the end of the age, to raise the dead. So he's doing this then, by doing this miracle, he was truly demonstrating that he actually was the author of life. So what's the accusation then? The accusation to, by Peter, you murdered the one that holds the power of life and death in his hands. You murdered the one that can resurrect you at the end of the days. We pick this up in verse 13. He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder, murder to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life. 
You know, we all know the uh, history between the Jews and the Romans in terms of the tension, how the Jewish people despised the Romans for being in their in their territory, so to speak, and they, they desired so greatly to be free from under their rule. And Pilate, especially, was not exactly their favorite person in the world. He was a ruthless man. You might remember in Luke 13, 1, that there was a comment by Jesus that Pilate had basically killed some Galilean people while they were in the temple offering sacrifices. So in the midst of this sort of holy sacrifices, Pilate had no problem interrupting that service and just destroying the Galileans and spilling blood in the temple floors with the Galileans, with their lambs and so on, with the blood on, their, on the floor as well. Yet, look what Peter's saying. He said, Pilate was willing to release the righteous one. He was actually declaring Jesus innocent, the one that you hate and the, the one that's over you in authority, he's declaring him innocent, but you guys, you guys declared him guilty and even wanted Barabbas released in, instead of him. You talk about an indictment. Pilate even had it more right than you guys, the very one that they hated and wanted to be underneath his rule from. But the Jews, of course, that had failed to understand the purpose of his kingship He'd come initially to bring a spiritual kingdom and not a political one. And so they killed him. I wonder how Peter would speak to us today if uh, he preached this sermon. He'd say, you know, church, you know, Okotoks, God has exalted his servant Jesus. What have you done with them? How have you treated them? I mean, you may not have chosen Barabbas, but you might have chosen someone else. You may not be following Jesus because you're choosing to follow someone else now as well. In doing so, we reject the author of life, the one that has the authority to raise us from the dead. And it's an important question for us to ponder this Easter. So Peter breaks into his second point in his sermon. He gives an explanation and a plea. The explanation in verse 17 through 21 is this. God has appointed Jesus by his death and resurrection to be the restorer of all things in the end age. God has appointed Jesus by his death and resurrection to be the restorer of all things at the end of the age. The plea or the command, you better repent. If that's true, you need to repent. So we pick up this section here in 17 with bracketed by what the prophets had said in regards to Jesus. Look at verse 18 with me. He said, but these things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. So the prophecy said, Jesus was going to come to suffer and die. In other words, his death was no accident. It didn't take God by surprise. In fact, he'd predicted it, and he had predetermined it. The Jews, though, had failed to understand, like I said before, the purpose of his kingship, and didn't understand that he'd come to, to forgive sins and to build a spiritual kingdom initially and not a political one. 
Now, there are many references in the Old Testament to the nature of the prophecies regarding the fact that Jesus was going to suffer and die as the eternal king. The most famous being Psalm 22 and probably Isaiah 53, and you can look those up yourself later. But the prophets also spoke about not only death and resurrection, but he was God's anointed one who would bring future restoration. Look at verse 21. He says, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Now, this word restoration is a cool word. It means to set back in order, or basically uh, it's called... Um, Another way of defining it is the renovation of a new and better era. So Jesus, at the end of time, is coming to renovate, to do a renovation for a new and better era. So what things? Well, within the Jewish context, we see in Acts chapter 1, the expectation that the kingdom of Israel would be restored, that there will be a restoration of the kingdom of Israel. But what the prophets mostly spoke about was the day when God's eternal king would raise the dead and give them eternal life. Some to a resurrection of judgment, some to a resurrection of eternal life. And I want you to see these, these, these prophecies regarding the resurrection of the dead because they're really important. Look at Isaiah 25, 6 and 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that unfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all their faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him. And he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Isaiah 25 speaks of the future restoration when God will destroy the shroud that unfolds all the peoples, the sheet that covers the nations. He will swallow up death forever. Consider Daniel 12, 1 and 2. But at that time, your people, ever, sorry, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book of will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Consider Ezekiel 37 as well. But I want to leave you with one really important text based on what happened in Acts, Acts chapter 3. Look at this in Isaiah 35, 1 and 6, speaking of the restoration of all things. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with feeble hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The day the Messiah comes to restore all things, the lame will leap like a deer.
Read verse 8 with me. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. (laughs) Do you understand what this miracle is doing here, church? The miracle is not a means to an end. It's a sign. It's pointing to something. This Jesus has the power to raise this physical that raise, or, uh, raise this man's nerves and tendons and ligaments and body to full restoration is the same Jesus that's going to provide resurrection from the dead. It's a sign. Wake up, Jews. Wake up. The Messiah is here. He's fulfilling this prophecy right in your midst. This was a foretaste of what was to come in Jesus. And I was thinking about this, you know, it's about signs and miracles and what do they actually mean? You know, all of you experience this and you even, like you either did this to your parents or you're getting this back, this payback as parents. You're driving a long distance in the car. Are we there yet, daddy? Are we there yet, mommy? Are we there yet, daddy? Are we there yet, mommy? And we're like, no, not yet. But then we come to a sign on the road that says, you know, Canmore, 25 kilometers, Edmonton, 130 kilometers. We say, see, boys, girls, there's a sign that we're almost there. We're almost there. Jesus, what Peter's saying in this miracle is this. The Jews are saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Peter's saying this, almost, almost. But here's a sign. Here's a sign. Jesus has just resurrected this man's tendons and ligaments and bones basically from a congenital birth, this is the same person that's going to resurrect you at the end of the days. So therefore, he gives a huge plea in verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repent, he says, If Jesus holds the power of life and death in his hands, you better make sure that you're living according to how Jesus wants in this world and you've received the forgiveness of sins he's offered you. Paul says it clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.5, you only live for two people, two ends. You live for yourself or you live for Jesus Christ. There is no gray area. Every decision you make is made for yourself or Jesus Christ, there's no gray area. It gets masked in different ways. And so he says, it starts with repentance. You leave the life of sin behind that, that he's offered forgiveness for and live for him. And depending on your past, that's going to be a different process depending on what's been in, in, the, in your background. Because we all get tangled up in different ways. But principally speaking, restoration comes by living in accordance with his ways, with his ways. So with the sermon now two-thirds complete, Peter moves into the last third. He gives one more time an explanation, but this time with a warning. Basically, the explanation is this. All of Israel's A-list speakers spoke about Jesus. All of Israel's A-list speakers spoke about Jesus. The warning, 
You better listen to them. <laughs> Otherwise, the results will be one of eternal consequence. So let's look at the A-list speakers. Verse 22, Moses. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up a prophet for you like me amongst your brethren. To him you shall heed, give heed to everything he says to you. Look at verse 24. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel to his successors onward also announced these days. And then verse 25, Abraham, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Peter's point, Jews, we, I know you hold Abraham and Samuel and, and Moses in high regard. I know you do. You may not hold Jesus in high regard, but you hold them in high regard. So listen to what they said concerning the Messiah. And so he issues a warning. He says, if you don't listen to him, he says in verse 23, it'll be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from amongst the people. Physically, according to Daniel 12 and verse 2, multitudes will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and contempt. The body will be raised to join with the spirit, some for everlasting judgment and some for everlasting life. He's saying, if you do not heed the words of Jesus Christ, there will be, an, there will be the raising of the dead. The body will unite with the spirit, but it will not be for glory. And so he says, turn and repent. This is extremely powerfully a challenging considering the, where they're standing when this is all going on. Where are they standing? In the temple. God's dwelling place, supposedly, right? It's the holy place in Israel. And what's Peter saying? You're not safe in the temple. You're not safe. The temple can't save you. This, it doesn't have enough power to save you. It's Jesus Christ alone. You understand now why he got arrested? Why the resurrection from the dead is so offensive? It challenged everything in the Jewish way of understanding in terms of their world. What Peter was saying was this. The resurrection of Jesus meant that Jesus stood at the end of history he was the author of life, and he was the one who would one day summon everyone out of their graves, some to everlasting judgment and some to everlasting life. Preach that message in our context, in our world today, on a regular basis, you will find yourself in jail one day. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say that. I can't guarantee that, but you get the point. You could find yourself in a lot of trouble. But you see how this would oppose Islam. It's Jesus is a prophet, like Muhammad. No, he's the author of life who will one day summon all from their grave. The atheist, there is no such thing as the afterlife. Jesus said there's an afterlife. The atheist 
we all can come to morality on our own terms. We don't need a God. Jesus, according to Moses, he says, you listen to everything that he says or you'll be destroyed. The Buddhist, doesn't matter really if you live this way and that way. I mean, you can try your best you can, but you'll get reincarnated. You'll get a second chance to relearn the lessons from life and then a third chance. And then eventually when you become perfect, you become enlightened, there'll be no more suffering from you. The Bible says it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment. Do you understand now the importance of the resurrection from the dead? And so we celebrate Jesus Christ on this Easter, knowing that we've been forgiven of our sins if we've placed our faith in him. We are going to have a time of communion. Time of communion. You know the, the way it works here. If you have children that are under the age where they may understand the gospel message and what was proclaimed today, then we just ask as parents that you have them wait. But if you feel they have the mental capacity to understand the gospel, they're free to participate in our church. But I want to do something different today. I brought in this cross that we, uh, we, we um, had outside of, well, we actually brought it here once before as well. This is a, probably a life-size cross. It weighs about 120 to 130 pounds. And uh, this is thought to be with the size of crosses that they would be crucified on. Each of you was given a red piece of paper and a white piece of paper, I think. Did you all get one? Your kids can participate in this too. When you come up for communion, just take the red piece of paper, there's screws along the cross beam, just place it on the cross. There's a hole punched there, put it on the cross. That represents your sin, the death penalty, and the substitutionary death of Christ on your behalf. Place it on the cross in remembrance of what he did on Good Friday. Come up, take communion, and we're gonna, you can have it right here on the spot. We'll open it up. We'll do it right here as a family. So just maybe come up one-on-one, -on -one, one at a time. And then when you're done, take the white piece of paper and place it over your red piece of paper that you just uh, put on the cross or commemorating the forgiveness that Christ offered you by the blood and body that was broken for you. Okay, so come up, put the red paper on, take communion with me here, put the white piece of paper on, and then you can go back to your seat. Clear as mud? All right. Please just take a few minutes with your families to talk about uh, the Lord's love for you. And if you need to confess anything amongst each other, then that as well. Uh, Lord, we're so grateful that um, you've come down and lo lived among us and have died and, and resurrected uh, for us to reconcile the relationship back with you. And we're so grateful that it's on the merits of Jesus and not our own, and that um, we can live every day knowing that um, you initiated and you loved us first. And with that gives us the ability to love you back and love others in ways that um, we couldn't do it on our own. So I just pray we can continue to remember this, live in this fact and understanding of you come, you leaving to come back and, and bring us back into uh, the fullness of 
of uh, your redempting work and just pray that we can have opportunities to share today and what we experienced and um, and I pray that we can pump shoulders with people um, have some fellowship maybe have a meal together with with people that we can um, just talk and remember again and uh, celebrate in the things we love about you and the gratefulness we have for what you've done in your name. Amen.